Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. Today we've got a really interesting show. I've got a world-renowned speaker, a writer, and authority on the future of work. Monica Parker has spent decades helping people discover how to lead and live wonderfully. The founder of Global Human Analytics and Change Consultancy, Hatch, whose clients include blue chip companies such as LinkedIn, Google, Prudential, Prudential, and Lego. Parker challenges corporate systems to advocate for more meaningful work lives. We all need a more meaningful work life. In addition to her extensive advocacy work, she's been an opera singer, a museum exhibit designer, and a homicide investigator defending death row inmates. That's quite a combination of talents. A lover of the arts, literature, and Mexican food. Parker and her family split their time between Atlanta, London, and Nice. Her wonder bringing includes travel, fellowship with friends, and Trey and Stasio's guitar. Well, Monica, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Lee. I'm delighted to be joining you. So it's so your background is so interesting to me. You've just done a little bit of so many different things. I have. I um. I say that maybe my superpower is that I I have ADD and um. I get bored quite quickly. So I think until I discovered consulting, um. I I was always looking for a new opportunity to learn more. And I don't want it to sound like I'm a dilettante. I really um. I absorb myself completely in each one of these roles. But I do just love being constantly curious and learning as much as I can about the world. Oh, I share that with you as well. And I think that it's such a, you learn so much. Being curious is one of my things that I think I'm most proud of. That's great. Absolutely. I mean, curiosity is is so important for just development as a human. Well, you know, it's so interesting because growing up, my mom used to say, curiosity killed the cat. And I always wondered what she meant by that. Because uh, she never, she never, like, don't be curious but I always wondered, I wonder what she means by that, because curiosity, I honestly believe, is what keeps us learning and growing and connecting with ourselves. Absolutely. And sometimes curiosity does get a bit of a bad rap, right? Um, and we see in horror stories, right, in horror movies where you say, oh, don't go downstairs, you know, you'll, that, that's where the killer is. So sometimes we try to... Um, say that curiosity is is not a positive trait necessarily, but I think that the right kind of curiosity, deep curiosity that is epistemic, that fills our minds and our soul is is very positive. Oh, I do too. And, and you know, that, that type of curiosity, you're, you're utilizing your executive functioning, you're utilizing your creativity. That's a whole brain type of activity. Absolutely. And when you're curious about something and then learn the outcome, it it triggers a dopamine and then it is embedded in your hippocampus. So it literally changes the structure of your brain. And um, there's all sorts of research that shows that people who are curious, more curious, are um, uh, perform better in work and school, have better relationships. I mean, it's a really powerful emotion and something that is uh, to some degree a bit of a trait that we get from our personality, but also a state that we can dial up and down. So um, I, I love curiosity. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because, I've, you know, we can dial up and down. I've never really thought about it like that, but we can. I mean, and we, we all do it all the time. We get on the Internet and, and we get curious about something and off we go. You know, um, some of us go down that rabbit hole and get lost for a couple hours. And that's not always the best curiosity. But others of us have learned how to use that. And and it, for me, that's my playtime just to think about the things. And it's really been helpful. I'm finishing up my Ph.D. I'm in the middle of my dissertation. And it's really been helpful for me to just, you know, to get on AI for idea generation. And there's just, there's so much that the technology has to offer us these days. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think technology as a tool um, can be a double-edged sword. I think that uh, the internet, I wrote my entire book uh, during COVID. So had it not been for the internet and for Google Scholar, I would have been in a pretty, you know, tough spot. So I was able to find so much research and I loved it. But of course, there's also what happens with our social networks when we're on social media and all of the people who run social media know how our brains work and they know that that dopamine hit that we keep getting as we click, click, click. And in fact, we click more when it's something that is um, controversial and they feed on that. And that can actually become a negative kind of curiosity. And so it's about using the tool of the internet and those searches for something positive. Absolutely. And you know, they do that dopamine. You do something, you like it. The brain kicks out that dopamine. You do it again. The brain kicks out more dopamine, but then those little neurons and dendrites, they get all confused. And that's when we get to trouble. And I think that the social media knows how to manipulate our brain or are they trying to, I'm not a big social media person. And part of that, I think, is by design. But I think that it's important we understand the role that technology can play and use it. I absolutely use it to my advantage. But at the same time, I know when to walk away. And that's that, something. Yeah, that's very that's very powerful. And I think I, I applaud you for that, because it's something that's really hard for some people and certainly the younger generation. Um, I'm hearing some people saying, you know, the real Thing we need to be worried about is not what's going to happen with AI, but the sort of the quiet insidiousness of um, of social networks and what it's doing to our children. Well, and what is it doing? I know that you're a big daydreamer and it, I know you've said, you know, that's the gateway to wonder. What do you think all this this social media is doing to our ability to just close our eyes and relax and go somewhere new? Well, it's it's really destroying sort of our daydreaming. And of course, we we talk about some of those things that are not encouraged in us, like curiosity. Daydreaming is another one. I remember getting my report card that would be sent back um, to my mom. And it would say, Monica loves to daydream. I do wonder what she's thinking about. And, you know, it's not seen as a positive attribute, even in children, but it's so positive for us. It's really, there are different types of daydreaming. 
there are two that are not so positive. These are the, the kinds of daydreaming where we're reflecting on the past and sort of ruminating on maybe mistakes we've made or sort of catastrophizing what might happen in the future. But the positive constructive daydreaming is where we're creating future scenarios in our brain and our brains love that. But the problem is to daydream, we really have to allow ourselves to be bored and we don't allow ourselves to be bored. I even think about the expression that says what boredom is to twiddle our thumbs, but people don't twiddle their thumbs anymore, do they? They very deftly employ them um, clicking and scrolling. And so I think that these little machines that we carry in our pockets uh, can get in the way of us being the daydreamers that, that it would be really positive. Do you remember that song Daydreamer? And I'm definitely dating myself here. But I think it was the monkeys. They, oh, it was such a good song. I used to listen. I loved to that. the monkeys. Yeah, they, they dreamer. We, nobody wants to hear me sing. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, even then, we've captured it in music, and you know, we've written about it. But it's, I think, it's harder for us just to try and do it. So when you're when you're working with people. And they say, you know, I don't know how to daydream. And I would think you've probably heard that before. I have sometimes people, or they feel like they have to remember. I think everyone knows how, but it's it's remembering. And frankly, I think it's really about creating the mental space and time to allow yourself to do it. And that is a real big challenge. And when we're rushed, when we're stressed, um, our brains just use really quick ways to get from point A to point B and don't allow us to take sort of these meandering routes to, to daydream, to consider, to meditate, to, to sleep, to nap, um, and to frankly see the wonder that's in the world. And so one of the first things that I just always try to encourage people to do is just to slow down, to try to create space and time in your day for some kind of slow thought activity. That might be meditation, it could be daydreaming, it could be journaling, even a gratitude practice, but just something in your day that slows you down. Well, and you know, you make a good point talking about the brain and we all know the brain gives off enough energy to light up a small light bulb. But that brain needs every bit of that energy to run our brain and our body. And when it's when we have to redirect it other places because it's needed, it's not like we have just all this energy sitting around waiting to figure out what are we going to do with it. We need it. And I think that that's the hard part for, for people is just to, to think, okay, what do I really need to think about? What do I really need to focus on? because it's not everything. And nine times out of 10, it's not what we should be focusing on. Absolutely. And we, we really, as humans, tend to ruminate. That sort of, that running uh, sort of audio that we have in our, in our minds, the chattering monkey mind, you know, that you, you just want to shut off. And that is, that, that is really difficult to manage. And when you have what's, it, and that's referred to as having poor attentional control. When you have poor attentional control, it's just really hard to connect with a lot of these higher order emotions, with self-transcendent emotions. Um, and so it's about developing some kind of practice that gives you a degree of attentional control so that you can tell your brain, hush, hush, I don't need to be thinking about that right now. And instead, I'm just going to observe, or I'm just going to be, or I'm going to daydream, or I'm going to meditate. 
but that that process, especially for the way we live today, is really, really hard. Well, it is hard. And it's, you know, when I think about how we reward behavior, when you think about the, the kids, I, my niece's daughter just graduated from high school and now is going on to college. But but what we reward is did you take the did you take the pre-AP courses? Did mm-hmm. you push yourself? Did you volunteer? Do you have this on your resume? And I'm like, you're a high school kid. Um, you don't necessarily have to do all that. But guess what? Yes, you do. You do. You you do. do. And we, we've created a world that is very pressurized. Um, it's one of the reasons why scientists think perhaps that empathy levels are dropping. They've dropped 40% in the last 20 years because young people do not see the level of options that used to be available to other people. They feel like those options have been robbed from them and they see all they see is sort of a life of toil ahead of them. And so that, that creates a very insular kind of person. But what we're also seeing is that there is the opportunity for us to break that paradigm. But the challenge is is that there is something that um, uh, Daniel Kahneman in his Thinking Fast and Slow, he talks about something called action bias. And action bias is the bias that we engage in when typically leaders feel that they need to make a decision even if they don't have all of the information. And they tend to do that quite quickly. And then the society rewards leaders who make decisions quickly, even if at a later time it's found to be the wrong decision. And so we have a society that really rewards action, action, action all the time. And I think sometimes we just end up being busy fools. I think we do too. And I think that when we're, when we're busy, we exhaust ourselves. I can't tell you how many clients will come in and how are you doing it? I'm exhausted. I'm just, I'm, I'm exhausted. And when we talk about why and, and how we got there, they realize, you know, I don't have to play these little mind games. I And I always talk about the cingulate, the cingulate gyrus, that, that functioning neural pathway that brings information from the back of your brain is where you process it to the front of your brain is where you use it. And sometimes you can't stop that loop. Mm. And the, the harder you try, the harder you crank it up. Absolutely. And this is the thing. We have a sense of extreme time scarcity. Everybody feels that they have not enough time. And yet, realistically, if we were to say go back 150 years, we have so many more devices that actually save us time. We just fill that extra time with other activities. That is That ends up being, to a large degree, a choice. I loved, I interviewed this one woman who is a uh, an awe researcher and also a happiness researcher. And she went to a kite festival in Houston and beautiful rolling hills and people with their kites. And they interviewed people and said, how busy do you feel right now? And most people were at like a six or a seven at a kite festival. Like this is just fascinating that people, even on a beautiful, relaxing leisure day at a kite festival still feel that they're at a seven. And that is something that's really, I think, broken in our modern life. But one of the benefits is, is that we know that wonder actually helps us change our our perception so that we're able to feel like time stretches. So we can actually get more time. You know, and the way I look at it at the Brain Performance Center is what's going on in that head. How's that power being distributed? And the coherence, how's the brain sharing information? What's the timing? And all of that 
it impacts the way the brain works. But we're in charge and how the decisions that we make on executive functioning, all of that is what we're in charge of. And I think that's really the the thing that um, that we we don't believe we are in control of that. And part of that is because our neural pathways, as we get older, our brain becomes more calcified, right? And I love- Use it or lose it. Yep. And I love how um, the the gentleman who sort of coined the term neuroplasticity, Alvaro Pasqualioni, and he says that that our brain is like a ski slope. And yes, you can choose which route to take down the the ski uh, mountain, but after a while, it gets harder and harder to get out of the routes you've taken before, and those routes become ruts. Now, it's not impossible, and wonder helps clear the piece in a way, but it's it's very hard for us to get out of those neural ruts that we create. And absolutely, when we're stressed, when we feel time pressured, when we feel threatened, when we're anxious, our brain says, no, I've got no more energy for anything else. I'm taking the quickest way from point A to point B. And when we do that, we miss opportunities for wonder. Well, we do. And we miss it. We're not very happy about it either. So let's talk no. about opportunities for wonder. Where where do they come from? I, I am assuming you don't go looking for them. I know you don't go chase happiness. So do you chase wonder? Well, yes, I think wonder is more achievable than happiness. I mentioned to you that um, that a researcher who went to the kite festival and she used to be a happiness researcher. And she says she doesn't even do that anymore because she believes that we're so bad at knowing what makes us happy. It's called affective forecasting. And we tend to think something will make us happier than it does. And the challenge is, is we all have sort of a mixed bag of what we think happiness is. But wonder, it used to be thought that wonder would only be rare and fleeting, like seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time or seeing your child take their first steps. But more and more research is showing that, in fact, it's something that we can develop as a practice to see wonder in our day-to-day life. So it could be something as simple as a beautiful sunrise or a perfect fall leaf or a song you know, played in a darkened concert hall that just hits you just so. So I think it's about understanding what our wonder bringers are, knowing whether they're natural, are they cognitive, are they social? So natural like the Grand Canyon or taking a, a walk in nature. Um, cognitive would be, you know, a sort of noodling the, uh, a folded universe or sort of those big ideas that we like to consider that give us a sense of smallness. Or social, being with other people, wonder shared is wonder multiplied. So perhaps some people get their sense of wonder from others. So when you when I think about wonder, one of the things that that I have found, and I work with a lot of people with anxiety, depression, that really just want to enrich their life. And I I had a couple people come to mind as we're having this conversation. I'm like, I'm going to have to have some wonderful conversations with them. Um, and but and I imagine what will stand in the way is they are very rigid. The ability to be flexible is extremely hard for them. And I will say they're working on it and they're making progress. But for some people that that flexibility in the brain is very hard to achieve. 
Absolutely. And I think that's one of the benefits of wonders that it actually creates that malleability. It changes the structure of the brain and it starts to make it more plastic. And so if we can just commit to taking five or 10 minutes out of our day, 20 minutes to take a wonder walk, you know, 10 minutes to do some gratitude journaling, some of these aspects, anything that makes us feel like a smaller part of a bigger system. If we do that with regularity, we will start to see the world through a wonder lens. And I believe that certainly with that curiosity, with the awe, with the absorption, we start to have a, a, a more plastic mind. It is no question that as we get older, our brain becomes more calcified. Um, so it takes a little bit of extra effort. It's not just going to come naturally. And I did an interview with someone. They said, that sounds like a lot of hard work. Well, it's, yeah. not, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. And I think with so many things that are good for us, it's simple, but not easy. And so, yeah, you know, it, there is no, there's no opportunity for that gaining uh, that the, the benefits if we don't at least give it a try. Or we can well, sit around and wait for the big, you know, shabam sort of uh, wonder moment, but those will come very rarely, won't they? If you'd have better luck, maybe getting that lotto ticket and getting, the lucky, <laughs> and getting that lucky ticket, you know. Well, I think about, when I think about wonder, I think about, you know, a lot, a lot of people will, I use visualization a lot in my practice and I'll say, close your eyes and, you know, use your, those visualization skills to take you where you want to go. And most people have a place that they want to go. They have a happy place. And I wonder what it would be like to combine using visualization with wonder. Don't, no, don't, don't try to go to your happy place. Don't try to go to the beach or the mountains. Close your eyes and just stay in the moment. How would you coach somebody into that? Well, I think there's a lot of research that shows that reflecting on a moment of wonder that you've had in the past reinvigorates all of the benefits. So I think one of the ways that I might visualize it instead is to ask someone to, to think back in the past when they had a wonder moment and to try to visualize it in the most intricate detail that they can and tell it almost to themselves like a story. Our brains love stories. We love narrative. And it's just the way it's sort of structured. Globally, we're like this. And so I, it's really, if we could perhaps find the richness and detail of those moments that struck us and not let them be in the past, but bring them back into the present, I think that can be really powerful. I think that, you, that you're right. But do people ever say, when you say, think Pat, back at the past and identify that, that wonder moment you had, do they have a hard time doing that? Surprisingly, no. It seems to be universal enough that people say, yeah, yeah, I've had that. Sometimes you have to give them a few examples, like, you know, the first time your children, your your child said mommy or mama, um, or perhaps a, a holiday that you took where you saw the most beautiful vista that you, you've ever seen, or perhaps the feeling of of seeing a great orator, maybe they got to see um, someone speak that really moved them. Even religion, and there's there's religious opportunities for religious wonder. Some people find it in their faith, and so just with a little, I find with just a little bit of sort of nudging, they're able to find something in the past. But they tend to feel that it's something very 
very big and fleeting rather than recognizing that it can be in the quotidian. We can find it every day, but we start with the big ideas and then we say, okay, why did it make you feel that way? How can we capture that in a smaller way? How can we continue to create a practice where you don't just rush by those details? You don't need to be slapped across the face with it. You can instead absorb it in your, in your sphere while you're just moving about in the world. Well, and it, this really makes me wonder, what's the connection between, you know, your in your previous life, that homicide investigator, and now you, you explore the power of wonder? Those, to me, are very two different extremes. Well, <clears throat> my entire professional life, I have been helping people through change, so big existential change. Certainly, the uh, the state depriving you of your life is a big existential change for both the person who is going to be executed and their family and the people that care about them. I worked with uh, children with disabilities and their families sort of coming to terms with what their new expectations of their life would be. And even in the corporate sphere, you know, losing a job is one of the most ego impactful experiences that a person can have. And so I set about to write a book that would help people manage that change. And when I started to look at the red line through all of my different iterations as helping people through change, wonder kept coming up. And what I realized is that people who hold their world with a great sense of wonder are just more resilient. They're more able to deal with what life throws at them. And so that really started me down this path of, of exploring wonder in earnest. But I can see the connecting points between the various things that I've done, even going back to homicide investigation, because I definitely saw that with the the guys that I worked with, that those that could manage to maintain a sense of wonder were definitely able to be more resilient. And there's research even showing that now, research that was done in a, um, in a, a prison in, I believe, I want to say it was Washington State or Oregon, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And they gave uh, people an opportunity to go into a room and experience a a nature scene. And they found that that nature scene actually gave them a sense of resilience. It made them better able to manage being in that prison environment. That makes sense, or does to me, because that's one of the calmest places that I, when I really want to calm down, I go outside. I breathe that air. I think, you know, I connect. So that makes sense. Absolutely. And so I think it, it's just about helping people make that connection. And it's really terrible, not just in, in prisons, but there are a lot of people who are nature deprived, uh, people in inner cities, uh, people who are in nursing homes or in hospitals, people who are in prisons. And so it's fine. It's there. I think there's a benefit in finding ways that people can tap into wonder when they can't actually get out into nature. And that's about bringing nature into them. So for people, you know, life's been hard for globally for the last year. And for so people hard. that, oh, it's been so hard. And we've, it's so easy to become so cynical about life. I mean, you turn if you keep that news streaming 24-7 like it's available these days, it's hard to, to be positive and it's hard to see the goodness. So 
for, for people that are caught up in that, and, and for a lot of people, that's part of their job. They have to stay current. They have to know what's going on. How do you, how do they bring wonder into their lives? I really think that one of the main things is just creating a slow thought practice. So getting engaged in whatever it is that helps slow you down in a sense. So it could be narrative journaling, meditation, and any kind of meditation will work. I've been asked, well, what's the best kind of meditation? Anyone you do consistently. So it doesn't matter what kind, um, just doing it consistently anything that helps you build that attentional control so that you can start to, it's a little bit just like, you know, well, I want to eat less sugar. Well, I want to disconnect from some of this. I want, I want the chaos that occurs to not impact me psychologically. And that is something that really has to come with a great deal of practice. Another uh, surprising thing that's helpful in a slow thought practice is even just nostalgia. So nostalgia is a mixed emotion. So whenever we have mixed emotions, something that's sort of bittersweet, which wonder can be, it can be both positive and negative, that helps a great deal with resiliency. Duly, they're called duly valenced emotions. So curiosity, awe, nostalgia, um, gratitude, these are all duly valenced emotions. And even just reflecting back on a time in your life that had an impact on you, it doesn't even have to necessarily be a wonder bringing, but nostalgia has been shown to generate aesthetic chills. So those are those sorts of things that, um, that give you the goosebumps that tell you that you're, you're experiencing something that's affecting you. Um, it creates meaning making, you know, it's really can be very powerful. And so even just, uh, you know, having a few minutes for nostalgia can help. That's great advice. That really is. And I think that so we're so future oriented these days. We're always looking, you know, we're looking ahead. We're looking at what we're going to accomplish next and what we're going to achieve next, that there probably is a lot of beauty and just taking the time and, and to look back and reflect. One of the things that I have found is that people will say when I talk to them about meditation or gratefulness or a, a, any number of different things is I don't have time. I don't have yes. time. And my response is it takes five to 10 minutes a day. The problem is they're going to have to make some changes in their lifestyle habits. Yes. How do you deal with that? So one of the first things I say is, well, you, that, that wonder will give you a sense that you have more time and actually stretches time. It gives us a perception of having more time and several different experiments have shown that. So the first thing I say is just, if you just give it 10 minutes for a week, the 10 minutes will start to feel like it's not taking anything out of your day because you feel like you have more time. It just creates sort of this more breathing room in your day. So you can almost gain that time if you just invest for a little while. But some of it, again, is just saying, well, what, you know, what do you want to achieve? Is this important to you? Do you want to be more resilient? Do you want to feel less stressed? Do you want to have lower pro-inflammatory cytokines and, and lower cortisol levels? Do you want to be more generous and empathetic? And recognizing that wonder is a route to doing that, then just finding that five to 10 minutes to in, engage in a wonder practice can just be so positive. Well, I do know one thing. When you get all stressed out, those adrenal adrenal glands start kicking out all that cortisol. And then we start that fight, fight, or freeze. We get involved with that. So just calming down the autonomic nervous system. 
can calm down our brain. And honestly, when we're at our peak performance, we're calm, we're cool, and we're collected. Absolutely. When we are in that state, we cannot, our brains are not receptive to wonder. And so it's about that opportunity to slow down. You know, another great way to bring wonder into your life is just novelty, just trying something new, being open to new thinking, to new ideas, to new experiences. You know, if you walk to work, take a different route to work. Um, try a wonder walk, you know, 15 minutes out in nature and just see what you notice. So it's really just an opportunity about saying, I'm choosing to, I'm going to put it. It can be as simple as thinking, I'm just going to put a different pair of glasses on today and priming. We all know the power of priming, right? I mean, the only thing that makes a wonder walk, a wonder walk is you decide it is you say, I'm going to find things on this walk that give me a sense of wonder. And we can choose to do that even when we wake up. I'm going to find three things that make me feel a sense of wonder today and then write them down when you get home. You know, that 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 is just you observing the world. I mean, that's even a way to start. It's just by being observational to what it is that you're experiencing rather than being an autopilot with these blinkers on trying to get from point A to point B. Well, and the power of observation is great. one of the greatest skills that we all have right at our fingertips We just have to stop and think about using them. And it's a true fact. Research shows that every day we get three times more positive events in our day than negative. But what does the brain hold on to? The The one negative. negative. Yeah. I mean, this is the same brain we had back in the caveman days. Nothing's changed. You'd walk out of that cave and it was eat or be eaten. Well, Things have changed in that respect, but still two-thirds of the brain cells in the right hemisphere are scanning for danger. And when we always find what we're looking for, we always do. And when we do, that's what we hold on to and we remember. It's, you know, that one person that cut me off or that, that cut in front of me or that email I got that had that nasty tone. And it it is. We have to stop and think about what are three good things that happened today. And again, they're not great big things. They're usually small things, the little things. But I don't know about you, Monica, but it's the little things in my day that make my day go so much smoother. Absolutely. It really is the little things. And I know what you mean. You know, the the negative sticks in our, our noggin like a burr, right? And the good seems to sort of slip off of our brain. And so it's about being intentional. It's about being present so that you do notice it. Now, I'm not going to say that it's going to immediately, um, you know, overcome the negative that occurs in the world, but it will start to, to help you to identify those, to create a balance. I mean, even just sleep, you know, people aren't getting enough sleep. Just a good night of sleep will, will clean out the brain will help you from, you know, a mechanical standpoint, it it cleans out the lymphatic system and it allows you to just be clearer and more optimized when you wake up in the morning. Well, and just keeping yourself hydrated. The brain weighs three pounds. It's 60% water. If you're not keeping yourself hydrated, what are you doing to your brain? Absolutely. I think that there's just some simple things that we can do to to help us get in a place where then we can engage in a wonder practice. And, and it's wanting to do that. And it's being willing to say, OK, I can change my schedule by 10 minutes. I can make time 
I can make time for that because I can't tell you how many times I'll get the I'll get the response. I just don't have the time. And if you don't think you have the time, you'll never have the time. It's true. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And really, you know, I, I like to say that patience is considered a virtue in almost every major religion, right? And this idea of, of just being more patient with, with your own life, with the speed of things and accepting that will, will can contribute to sort of that, that attentional practice and attentional training. But well, I have to giggle when you say that because I was around my grandbaby this weekend and they were do they were practicing patience construction. <laughs> oh, interesting. I know. And she's 16 months old, but I certainly see the need. I mean, I, I was in awe that she was doing that with a 16 month old. There's, but you're right. Patience is, and my point with that was just that patience is our foundation. Absolutely. And, and it's great that she's starting young because it's definitely a life skill and one that most of us have not learned. But, you know, the reality is that wonder is nurtured in a slow environment and it's really made difficult without without sleep, without hydration, as you mentioned, and with some degree of practice that helps us connect to something above ourselves, something outside of our immediate ego needs. Well, you know, the brain is so fascinating. Every second, the brain is capable of taking in 11 million bits of data. Mm. Research says that somewhere between 40 and 126 can be stored on a conscious level. Personally, I think it's 40, but we don't have to do the math. I mean, where does it all go? It goes into that subconscious level. And to touch that subconscious level, you've got to have that that belief, belief in a higher spirit, whether you call it God or Buddha or Allah, you've got that higher, those higher frequencies, that higher spirit, that belief alone, I think will enables us to do things that we normally don't take the time to do. Absolutely. And you mentioned sort of, it's almost a cacophony of, of, uh, of activity, isn't it? That, that occurs outside of our brain and we're not really noticing any of it. We, or most of it, we really only notice the things that change. And that's one of the reasons again, why, why novelty is such a powerful way to bring us wonder because we need to constantly be telling our brain, wake up, notice this, wake up, because otherwise we do go into autopilot. And autopilot is not a bad thing sometimes. It's basically, it's like, you know, your operating system on your, uh, on your computer. It can't be running all the time. But what we want to try to do is just be aware of a little bit more of our environment rather than blinkering off. And the way that we do that is quieting our mind and, and creating space in our in our day to be able to observe those different elements. Well, and I think that we tend to depend on that, that autopilot. And what I encourage people to do is to challenge it. Don't depend on it. You don't like the way you're doing things. You want to change your behavior, but you're running on autopilot 90% of the time. How's that working for you? 
Exactly. You know, and it's the way that our brain works. We filter what we see, you know, based on these ancient protective reactions and it builds these patterns, these heuristics or schema. And we're just trying to get our brain to the point where it notices a different pattern. It notices incongruity um, rather than just getting into the pattern and telling your schema, oh, I've seen that. And there's nothing to see here. There's no wonder to see and just moving on. Um, so it's it's about having that awareness uh, in your world to be able to to notice these changes that are happening all the time. We just filter them out. Well, and I think the the sad thing is, is we think that we're helping ourselves. We think that what we're doing is going to be good for us. And it's not. It truly isn't. And working with the brain, working with people, whether it's eight. ADHD, anxiety, depression, OCD, autism. It's it's just a dysregulated brain. You can create regulation in that brain. It's just making the time and the effort to do that because with the technology that we use, when we create neuroplasticity, with the neurofeedback that we do, we train the networks and hubs, you still, on a conscious level, have to put some wrap your arms around it and say, challenge your behavior. What am I going to do different? Absolutely. It is about recognizing, and I think a lot of it is just recognizing the way that our brain develops habituation, the way it develops adaptations, and to try to harness that knowledge in order to to create a a, a more aware mind. Being aware, I think, is oftentimes we go ties into that autopilot. We're just on autopilot. We're not really paying attention. And, and what do you see? Stop and look around the room. Tell me three things that you see. Okay. And I'll watch people. They'll just kind of have to recalibrate their brain and reset and say, okay, let me see. Okay. I see your white orchid over there and I see the plant and but you have to slow them down to get them to be able to do it. Well, and that's the thing that this research about taking wonder walks, they, they basically took two groups of people. One just said, take a 20 minute walk in nature. And the other, they said, look for things that give you a sense of wonder on your walk. And the wonder walkers came back and had better stress regulation during the course of the week. Um, they had lower stress cortisol. And what was fascinating is they also took selfies before and after and they had bigger smiles. So it's it, the problem is, is the regular walkers, although they were walking, they were in nature, they weren't seeing it. They were ruminating about work they had to do, a trip they had to go on. So they weren't actually present in that space. Whereas the people who were the wonder walkers were actually present and allowing themselves to, to receive the benefit of being in that environment. Well, there's a lot to learn about wonder. And I encourage people to, you've got a book, The Power of Wonder, the extraordinary emotion that will change the way you live, learn, and lead. And for people that are more interested in wonder and want to know where to get that book, what can you tell them? Absolutely. They can get the book anywhere books are sold. Um, and you can find out more about Wonder at monica-parker.com. I've got loads of resources on my website, everything from an assessment to see how wonder prone you are. You can sign up for my weekly Wonder Bringers newsletter um, or even just download some uh, guidance on how to take a great wonder walk. That would be great. 
you know, just to have those resources at your hand, just in case somebody decides that they, they do want to reach out. They do want to take a wonder walk. And I know in your book I that you, you start talk about the elements of wonder, and then you go into wonder as a practice, and then living in wonder. And how long does that transition take? Can you do that? Very, I think it's very individual. Um, and how people are able to create that degree of attentional control. And in some ways, I would say probably there might be a little bit of toggling back and forth, right? So wonder as a practice is about gaining those skills and then living in wonder is embedding them, making them something that you don't have to, it doesn't feel like you're working at it anymore. Rather, you are, uh, you have gained that wonder mindset that is really embedded. So it becomes natural. Yes. That's great. And when I think about how much just me bringing gratefulness into my life, how much that has helped me and really changed my positive perspective that I wonder is something that I'm thinking I may have to try next. Well, I would be delighted if you did and you need to tell me how it works out. (laughs) Well, you know, to me, it, it ties into resilience. And when the, in the middle of the the pandemic, I decided I need to, I need to build my resilience. And so I I did a mastermind class and I, and I did, I used that time very wisely, but having that as another part of my resilience, I think would, would really broaden my skills, would broaden my personal and my professional goals. Absolutely. And I'm even working with uh, corporates that are integrating certain qualities of uh, a wonder mindset into leadership DNA. So I think that it can be applied anywhere to the benefit of people. Well, and thank you for making that point, because so, so many times we'll hear things and we'll say, you know, it's just it sounds great, but it's not for me. And what I just heard you say is, you know, it can be for anybody and everybody that wants wants to explore, wants to take a little time, slow down, let yourself be bored, be curious. All of those things can help people find their own way to wonder. Absolutely. You said that beautifully. Thank you so much for being with me today, Monica. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And for our listeners, again, the name of the book is The Power of Wonder the extraordinary emotion that will change the way you live, learn, and lead. Thank you so much for being with us. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Music